Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's sponsor is Tim Tebow's book, Bronco and Friends, A Party to Remember, a new book from the New York Times bestselling author and football star. In a world that often expects everyone to look and act the same, standing out can make us feel less than. But as Bronco and his friends learn, bringing your own particular gifts to the party makes it more fun for everyone. This sweet story and adventure to remember reminds children and their favorite adults that every one of us is special, wonderfully made, and essential to God's big party. Find out more at timtebow.com slash Bronco and Friends. Catherine May is the author of Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. She also runs the Wintering Seasons podcast, where she talks to writers and performers about the cold seasons in their lives. Her journalism and essays have appeared in many publications, including The Times, The Observer, and Good Housekeeping. Catherine works as a literary scout and is a freelance editor for organizations, including Audible. She is the editor of the upcoming anthology, The Best Most Awful Job, which brings together 20 bold and brilliant women writers to speak about motherhood in its raw and heart-wrenching forms, challenging the perceptions of what it means to be a mother. Ooh, I can't wait to read that. I had a great conversation with Catherine about loss and love and marriage and, and everything, so I hope you enjoy our talk. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I cannot wait to discuss Wintering, your beautiful new orange-covered book. We've been just discussing where it's going to go on my <laughs> color-coded bookshelves, so I had to flag that it was orange and beautiful. Wintering, the power of rest and retreat in difficult times, which could not be coming out at a better time. I mean, this winter, difficult times, you like nailed the timing on the public. <laughs> I would really like to put it out there that I neither planned nor caused this moment in history, but I'm very glad to be <laughs> landing in it. <laughs> Noted. Okay. Understood. <laughs> so Catherine, can you tell listeners please what your book is about and then what inspired you to write this book? Sure. Yeah. So wintering, it's part memoir and part, I don't know, like something entirely different. It's really about the times in life when we fall through the cracks. And that's familiar to all of us. So I'm trying to draw a line between those experiences of all the awful things that happen to us as human beings. So that might be illness, it might be mental illness, it might be things like divorce, it might be bereavement, it might be the loss of a job. Or it could just be one of those times in life when everything just seems to fall apart. You know, you're you're ready for a change, but you don't know how to make it. And I explain that by drawing on winter the season so I'm a I'm a big winter lover I have to come straight out with that I'm I'm one of those people that's very uncomfortable in the summer I love the winter but I also see winter as a real time of rest and renewal and restoration and I wanted to show how if we think about winter as a dead time we completely miss the point and that actually when we're wintering we're massing our energies for the next stage 
I love how you applied that to everything from how the popular advice is misguided, right? That you should, you know, cope, you have to like buck up and, you know, it's going to be okay. And instead by shifting your mindset and expecting winter to come Mm. and not hoping that every day of winter is going to be a summer's day. Same thing with, with any of the trauma, loss, job, Mm. any, any issue. If you have the right framework, it can make you feel so much better in a difficult time. And that's really like the secret sauce to this book is like, yeah, it's reframing almost, right? It's reframing how how to fit a difficult time into the chaos of everyday life, especially when other people are not having a difficult time. No, I mean, and actually this year, everyone's having a different difficult time, aren't they? I mean, that's, that's the big change. Everyone's wintering at once at the moment and in so many different ways. But yeah, I suppose I'm thinking about, there's a problem that we've got with positivity nowadays. You know, we're all busy sharing memes on Facebook and Instagram that we want to be seen to be positive. We want to be those people who are like always on it and always impressive. And obviously that hides a lot of stuff. But the message that we receive from that is that we're not allowed to fall. We're not allowed to mourn. We're not allowed to be ill. We're not allowed to suffer. We've got to put a brave face on it pretty quickly. And I think that's harming us. I think we've got to the point where we can no longer keep pretending to be perfect. And that actually by living through those really painful parts of life, we get a lot from that. That's part of being human. And your book is so great because you make yourself instantly relatable and likable when you talk about <laughs> your vacation, when you're playing on the beach with your son, Bert, yeah. and your husband, who you call H, and he starts, your husband starts complaining of feeling sick, and you're kind of like annoyed by it. Um, yeah. <laughs> wait, I have to find this quote because it made me laugh so much. You said... Oh no, I remember saying, trying to sound sympathetic while privately thinking, what a nuisance it was. We'd have to cut the day short and head back home and then he'd probably need to sleep it off. It's so funny, right? Like our loved ones are like sick in front of us and you're like, oh gosh, now what's Bert going to do the rest of the day when the rest of his friends are at the beach and like, how am I going to entertain him? And it's like, I just love that you put such a relatable moment right in the beginning, especially because this became like a horrific situation, right? And you yeah. Humor. Tell me more about Bird and what ended up happening in the hospital and everything. Yeah, I mean, I was absolutely the last person to realize that he was really, really sick. He had a very severe appendicitis, very bad infection from it, and eventually ended up being taken into hospital and then had to wait a very long time for surgery because the hospital was so busy. And it was really terrifying. It was really life or death. And it meant that after he'd had the surgery, he was in hospital for over a week, just failing to recover in the way they expected him to. And it was just an absolutely terrifying time. We couldn't work out what was wrong with him. He was just so sick for a long time. And it was just a real, you know, mortality reminder that that comes every now and again. It was, we really felt like we could have easily lost him. And I felt like I had to personally be there advocating for him all the time to make sure he absolutely got the care he needed. So yeah, it was a it was a wake up call for us, I think. And even how you describe sort of being back and forth from home to mm. drop offs to having your son stay somewhere else. And then when you would get to a place suddenly feeling like there was nothing that you even could do there. Right. Like yeah. rushing back to the hospital to sit and wait and have nothing happen and like twiddling your thumbs and trying to be like, what can I do in this time to help anything? And that sort of feeling of 
helplessness yeah. amidst the chaos. Yeah, I think we all come to that time in our lives at some point. And it's that feeling of being completely exhausted, but also totally wired at the same time. You know, you're hyper alert. You're just trying to do the best for the people that you love and trying to balance the responses of your kids against, you know, needing to tend to your husband. I mean, that that's such a hard thing to do. I mean, Bert was absolutely terrified. He didn't want to see his father. He didn't want to look at him because he was covered in wires and pipes and just didn't look like himself and kept kind of dozing off mid-sentence and that kind of thing. And there's just so many, and, and you know, that's without my own fears, right? That's without all the stuff that's going on in my head. Like, what happens? What happens now? It's a terrible time. And I know for some people, you know, we had a week of it and it was awful. Some people that goes on for months and years. So I'm very mindful of that. Yeah. And then you move from there to talking about your own physical response. You you tied it to your sort of stress of your job, but mm. compared it to a, a type of like symptoms of bowel cancer, really. Yeah. So tell yeah. me about tell me about what happened then. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing the stupid thing that you always hear about other people doing, and you think you'll never be the one that does it, which is carefully ignoring all the major symptoms of bowel cancer for about six months. It's amazing how easy that stuff is to push away when you're incredibly busy. And I did. I had a a busy, stressful job. I I was leading a creative writing degree at university. There was a lot going on. I was a mother, obviously, and I was writing books in my spare time. (laughs) And I'd been coping for so long that I couldn't hear the messages my body was sending me. I knew I was massively stressed and I knew I was becoming unwell. But it was only when I was sitting in the hospital by my husband that I began to realise how much pain I was in. And I assume it's because it's the first time I'd slowed down for a long time. And even that didn't feel very slow, but I was sitting still. And I thought that it was probably sympathetic almost. My pain was in exactly the same place that his appendicitis was. And so I left it again, of course. But then within a couple of weeks, I ended up doubled up over my desk at work on the phone to my doctor saying, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like I'm in (laughs) labour. And yeah, I mean, it it took a little while, but it turned out that I had multiple bowel problems, luckily not cancer. But I did go away with a very thorough ticking off and a warning that I had the the intestines of a particularly self-negligent 75-year-old. And I, I was sitting there going, but you know what? I, I eat my vegetables. Like I'm a vegetable fan. <laughs> you know? I'm really careful about my diet. I take exercise. And then I, I had to just sit down and think, yeah, but you have lived with enormous stress for years and years and years. And that'll do it. It doesn't matter how many you know portions of cabbage you eat, the stress will get you in the end. And it, it did. That's a very sobering message. <laughs> yeah, sorry, everyone. I'm, no, I'm no, it's good to hear. No, it is so important and good to hear, but it's just, you know, it makes me want to take a deep, a deep sigh. You know, it's so easy yeah. to ignore the stresses or say like, this is what we have. We have to do this and there's no choice. And yet, yeah. you know, there's only so much mind over matter can help with your body. So much pushing through. Yeah. yeah. You can't keep pushing through. You have to listen to those signals that we know we should listen to. But wow, I was so good at ignoring them. I was impressive there. (laughs) If we could give medals for ignoring (laughs) your body and being self-care negligent. Congratulations. Woohoo. Yeah. (laughs) That's not the medal I ever wanted to win, but there we go. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, tell me about the decision to write this book. And I know mm. you're, you're a creative writing professor. You are a brilliant, beautiful writer from the first sentence on through. And it's a, a the way you use metaphor all the time and the way you can like cut through and use language sparsely and yet so beautifully. I, I mean, it's very captivating, I have to say. Oh, I mean, and I mean, it. it's, it's really amazing. Perhaps this is what you teach your students, in which case I want to like take your class. But <laughs> tell me about the writing of this book and even your writing style, how it all sort of evolved and developed. Yeah, well, I suppose when I start, first started writing, I did start writing poetry. And I think that's such a, a great kind of school for economy and finding that exact image and just that image that's, that's necessary. But also, I think the writing style comes from my really deep engagement with winter. I just wanted to write about all the lovely things about winter. You know, like one of the first lines I wrote was about the pavement sparkling in winter. And I, you know... There were so many things I just wanted to say and I'd been pursuing it all my life, you know, going on holiday in Iceland and Norway instead of Spain and Greece. I mean, that's, that's, the, <laughs> that's what my family has to put up with from me. But the idea for wintering a book came really, I mean, before that whole crisis happened, weirdly, when I realised that I was a kind of expert in living through those times of life, that I recognised them really well and that I actually had a technique for them. And not that I enjoyed them, but that I could see the value of them and I'd learned to burrow into them. And I realised I, I had something to share. I wanted to write a book that told other people how to do it. But I thought I was going to be writing it from the sunny uplands, you know, <laughs> when everything was fine. I thought I could look back over wintering periods in my life and wisely give advice to people. And that's how the book was pitched. But then everything happened at once during it. And first of all, I really resisted writing about them because it's like, this is not my book. This is not fair. This was not supposed to happen. And then I realised I just, I had to crack it open and, and let people into the process that I was going through at the time. So yeah, that, and I think that, that changed the book for the better because I think it brings that kind of immediacy to walking alongside me, I suppose, going through the process with me. And I that then became my kind of mission that I wanted to take people through day by day those feelings. And I, I think I wouldn't have thought of loads of them if I hadn't have been living them at the time. And where, like, what was your writing process like when you wrote it? Was it, were you at this desk with these beautiful curtains behind you? Or where, where, where did you like to do your writing? And how long did the whole book take? Yeah, I, I'm quite random in my approach to writing at the best of times. So I'm, I've always been someone that will do a little bit on the kitchen table, a little bit on the sofa, a bit in a cafe. But actually, towards the end of the period when I knew I was going to have to deliver the book, and as I document in the story, I had to pull my son out of school because he had stopped coping. And that meant that most of the book actually got written in the cafes of soft play centres and on benches in playgrounds. I have a favourite playground in my hometown of Whitstable that actually has a table and a bench, which means that I can put my laptop in it if it's not raining. Yeah, so it was really, really pieced together in tiny snatches and getting up very early, like 4.30 in the morning to get a couple of good hours in before Bert woke up. So it was, it felt very against the wire actually I didn't get the time on it that I wanted and I really did submit it in total terror that my editor would sort of say what is this you know go back and rewrite it and I thought well at least that buys me some time if she says that that's the best I can do 
but no she she loved it luckily I got I think I got away with it you got away with it it's it's beautiful (laughs) and it's also something that's nice to return to because you have something for each month Mm. so I know like I read it all in one sitting right like because we were talking but now that I have this it's like okay it's November. Like I can go back and read the November chapter and maybe that'll put me in the right mindset. And like, usually you, you know, you always talk about going North, right? You're like always venturing (laughs) into new lands. That's not my like (laughs) go-to, but even just like getting to relive your moments in each month and, and not letting sort of the depressing darkness feel that, but feel uplifting in a way. Mm. As someone yeah, who's a lover, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe I can convert you. Yeah, um, there are some people who are reading it month by month, so they're going oh. very slowly through it, which I love. I really, I wanted it to track the year because I, winter isn't just one monotonous space; it's actually full of really distinct moments, and they are the going into winter, the, that midwinter period where everything feels sort of quite heavy and bleak, but that's actually the moment when we've arranged loads of celebrations. So maybe midwinter passes quite easily. And it's then the time after winter, that kind of January, February time when everything feels very heavy and you think the sun's never going to come back again and all hope is lost. Everything's very dreary. I wanted to track right through to that and then into the, the first signals of hope in the, in the new spring that are coming when the wildflowers come out and things like that. I really enjoyed that part of it, actually. I learned a lot about how winter progresses. It, it made me engage more with that season and really notice the changes that take place that had been you know, invisible to me before, as they are to so many of us. So do you have any advice on periods of wintering that don't have, have to happen during the winter season? So what you started out by talking about, all these different things that you can be going through. If somebody is going through a wintering season in their own life, yeah. And so the agnostic. Yeah. What advice do you have? Because you know the advice that you reference on Instagram, and you you say like this is not good advice. This is not friendship. This is not how you cope. Okay. So so tell me like what? Give give me the goods. Okay. So the first thing I'd say is that you can't avoid winter. You're, it's coming. You know, obviously Game of Thrones was more insightful than we even realize. Winter is coming. But if you if you know that a downturn is coming in your life then actually there comes a point when you have to stop pushing it back. You can defer it for a while, but actually it gets worse. And my advice always is to engage with it, to walk alongside it, to make some space for it, to be in that sadness or that grief or that fear, whatever those emotions are, to actually spend some time with them and to be with them because they're always asking us something and it's usually a change And I often think that a wintering is the process of accepting a change that's coming anyway. But that is the painful bit. If change wasn't painful, then we would adapt to all sorts of things that happen to us in our lives instantly and it wouldn't be a problem. We can't. We have to very, very slowly adapt. And I think, I don't think I'm alone in this experience that when a major thing has happened to me, it takes a few months for it to enter my dreamscape at night. I don't know if that's true for you, but I think there's a sign there that that's the moment when we've begun to, begun to integrate whatever it is that's, that's come into our life. It takes that, that length of time. 
and, I, and those of us that have lost a loved one know that there's that year cycle in which everything is so hard that first year and you're still grieving after the first year, but it takes that full year to really absorb the change that's happened. And I think at the other end of the scale, it takes a full year to absorb having your first child, perhaps, you know, that massive, massive change. And we've lost the ability to talk about change as slow and that that slowness is necessary and useful. We want to rush everything. We want to short circuit everything. We want to find the book that gives us 10 easy steps to get through it in a month instead of a year. And I think we have to radically abandon the idea that that's even possible and learn to know that we've almost evolved to accept things slowly. And that's how it works for us. So it's not an easily packageable okay. idea. <laughs> it's not. It's really, it's, it's the hard, it's the hard, hard truth of being a human that actually we can live through those moments at a very slow pace, but that great work is being done. And back to that first year of having a child, you wrote about actually losing your voice, which as I hear now is absolutely beautiful, (laughs) but that you literally lost your voice when you had your child Mm. and had to to reteach yourself to sing and all this stuff and how it was like you were a walking metaphor for like losing your voice in parenthood. Um, Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I was teaching at the time as well. And like when I was a teenager, I'd always been a chorister. So I'd always really valued my singing voice. I love singing. I might not sing professionally, but it's something that I do to release energy and tension. And first of all, my voice just began to crackle. And then I experienced it cutting out fully mid-sentence. It would just go. And I had various investigations. I didn't have polyps or anything like that. But I ended up going to a singing teacher after months and months of, of really struggling, and it became very uncomfortable too. It was really tickly. And so I'd start talking about it, cough, 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 cough. And I, I felt like I was being silenced. I was in this point in my life when I suddenly felt really invisible and really irrelevant to the outside world and, and really overtaken with mother work. And, and like I was just clinging on by my fingertips onto the career that I wanted to have. And I didn't know what to do until a friend who's a professional singer said, look, I know this really brilliant singing teacher. Professional singers have trouble with their voices all the time. I bet he can help. And I thought, well, you know what? If nothing else, I might quite enjoy it. I might quite enjoy spending some time singing. I didn't think I could possibly hit a note. (laughs) And there was one particular note I couldn't hit, which ironically is middle C, which when you, I don't know if you've ever done singing training, but you always start at middle C and sing upwards in your scales. So the first note, I I just didn't have it. It wasn't there in my voice. And we retrained my middle C back in, but we had to do that by bouncing onto it from other notes. And that retrained my whole voice. I essentially kind of, re, they, they can remap your vocal cords so that you're, you're using different parts of it. And it was, the process was remarkably quick. It took a few weeks and I was talking again. But he also taught, taught me how to read from uh, Under Milk Wood by Dylan Thomas as a way of learning how to retrain my speaking voice as well so that I was almost singing and I think my voice is probably different now to to what it was then but I've got used to talking that way it's much easier. All right last question do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Just write 
just right. I hear so many people giving so much advice and I don't think there's any one system you can follow. I don't think there is any practice that's better than other. But if you can sit down and write as much as you can on whatever subject you want to, whatever really moves you and makes you want to talk, then that's the best start you can possibly have. It's beguilingly simple, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing Wintering for your beautiful book. I'm going to wave my copy back at you, look. Oh, yeah, look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's been really lovely to talk. You too. All right. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Tim Tebow and his book, Bronco and Friends, A Party to Remember, for sponsoring today's episode. Go check it out at timtebow.com slash Bronco and Friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mm-hmm.